It's Jim Paff, and welcome back to the Against Nice podcast, where we believe that nice people are the cruelest of all people because they're subjective and selfish in the way that they address society. Kind people have the interests of others in mind, but they speak truth into society. Follow us on iTunes, give us a five-star rating, and also uh, give us your review of the podcast. You can also follow us on Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and many other podcasting apps. Now let's get to the show. Well, so we've got a great interview today with my friend Matt Kibbe of Free the People. Freethepeople.org is his uh, website, and Matt has put together a team of people in this organization who take a totally different track on really advancing the principles of liberty in this country. Uh, Matt has been a great leader. We've known each other for a lot of years. He's he's just a tremendous advocate for individual liberty and freedom, and he doesn't do it in a uh, primarily political way. He's telling stories about the issues that matter so that everyone can grab onto it. And he's really speaking to young people in a fantastic way, too. We hit on COVID-19 response and what it's done to our economy. We're going to talk a little bit about a major initiative in Colorado that deals with criminal justice reform. That's exactly the way we need to go and and hits the issue the way it needs to be done and it's actually a grassroots approach to this problem with policing and criminal justice that is really the big topic today. So you're not going to want to miss listening to this whole conversation. So without further ado, Matt Kibbe from Free the People. Glad to have my friend Matt Kibbe here of uh, Free the People, one of the great promoters of liberty around because, you know, Matt is uh, fantastic at uh, – telling great stories and talk about what's going on and reveal what's bad without getting all ticked off about it. And so it's, it's really awesome. Uh, quick bio here. Matt's the, like I say, president and chief community organizer at Free the People. Uh, they really educate a lot of people what's going on. I'm going to send links to their website because you've got to see some of these video productions they're doing, which really are fantastic at revealing you know, some of the key issues that are happening right now. He's also a co-founder and partner of Fight the Power Productions. And he's a distinguished senior fellow at the Austrian Economic Center in Vienna, which, uh, Matt, I'm rather envious of. I kind of wish I could get that distinction, but I'll, you'll be my proxy for now. So thanks for, <laughs> thanks for coming on the podcast today. Whatever I can do for you, Jim. It's, it's good to see you, and uh, hopefully someday we're we're legally allowed to, to gather in person. We'll have to get the proper permissions. But let me just comment on my title at Free the People. It, yeah, it's I call myself Chief Community Organizer uh, purposefully, and I'm I'm not trolling Barack Obama. I'm actually trolling people that are triggered by the phrase community organizer because those are those are our words. And I wonder, you know, people that are triggered by that are they against the community part or being organized part? Uh, one of my missions in life is to take back our words and community is a very constitutional yeah. conservative libertarian wor- word we believe in the power of communities so let's let's not be shy about about reclaiming and rehabilitating that that phrase that's right i mean when it comes to economics civil liberties our in our freedoms began in a community way 
In fact, when you look at um, the, both the Declaration of Independence and our Constitution, I mean, these are founded on we the people, that larger community nationwide. And it is amazing how we've come into an era where we don't understand the value of the people in this country who sustain it, even with, when we've got government overreach like we do right now, when we've got these challenges coming our way, the answers always happen with the people. The government rarely does anything that works uh, to anyone's advantage and almost always does something that harms what the people in our country were already doing well. It's kind of a go-to understanding that we have whenever you're facing a unknown threat like we're currently dealing with or you're dealing with a set of complex issues. The solution we know is the dispersed knowledge and work and cooperation of people from the bottom up. Our entire worldview understands that, that free people solve problems when they're left alone to work with their neighbors and their communities and their states and their nations. And whenever somebody comes in, it could be a Republican, a Democrat, wannabe authoritarian that says, I know better than you, I'm gonna impose a one size fits all top down plan on things. We should immediately be skeptical because we understand what sustains this country. It's always bottom up. And I think that that applies now more than ever, but, but I, I'd sort of draw on that sort of Austrian economics. You, you talked about the, the uh, Austrian Economics Center. Um, <laughs> I draw on that specifically because that, that whole worldview understands that the, the, the future is always radically uncertain. And the, and the point of economics and cooperation is to figure out really complex things that we don't understand. And, and no person smart enough to do it for us. You know, Ronald Reagan said that uh, politics is the world's second oldest profession and very much like the first. You know, um, what happens so often when we get into situations like this, just to pick up on what you're saying, I mean, politi politicians usually come in to impose things or consider things, frankly, so that, not, not because it's going to bring any real solution, but so that they can say that they were part of the solution. I mean, that, that's kind of the crooked aspect of politics that I think Americans, I think, intuitively know this, but they sometimes don't consciously see it happening right in the middle. And, and that's, that's why, uh, you know, you, you're, you're, I just want to pick up on a tweet you sent today, which will date when we did this on August 20th. But you said Americans find themselves uh, suddenly confronted with the reality that virtually everything we were once free to do now requires asking permission from our local, state, and federal government overlords. Here's hoping we all find this intolerable because it is fundamentally un-American. Un I mean, that that's what <laughs> that that is what we fundamentally need to address right now. This is why you community organizing is actually precisely the approach that we have to reassert. I mean, de Tocqueville's uh, little communities that he saw when he was here in the 1820s. We, we once were like that. We once were a community that really said, hey, listen, we, we, we elect you. I mean, you know, take care of a few of these things that we're doing, but we got this. We don't need you. Yeah. And you see, there, there is that resilience. And I, we could be frustrated right now. And I certainly am frustrated that more Americans aren't engaged in peaceful civil disobedience about the fact that just taking your kids to the playground apparently is now 
potentially a crime against the state. It's hard to tell sometimes because the rules that are being imposed on us keep changing by the hour. We don't know what the rules of the game are. And, and certainly, you know, conservatives and libertarians, we're, we're sort of programmed to follow the rules. And, and it takes us a while to realize that if they're changing the rules all the time, there's a certain absurdity about it. But, but I was heartened to, you, you know this story, but um, during the 4th of July, all of our, our uh, big city mayors, including in Washington, D.C., and, and particularly in Los Angeles, uh, mandated that there shall be no 4th of July celebration, there shall be no fireworks. Well, we immediately, unspontaneously, undirected, um, privatized the provision of the government service of fireworks, and we just did it for ourselves. Yeah. And to me, that, that shows me that the American instinct to live your own life even when your your authoritarian mayor tells you that you can't do that, we, we just go ahead and do it. So I think I think we need to do that, but it's it's got to be, you know, when I say civil civil disobedience, I'm talking about taking a walk with your dog. Yeah, <laughs> that's I'm not right. About, I'm not talking about burning stuff down or breaking windows. I'm talking about doing what you did before the government decided you couldn't do it. And and to me, if enough of us did that. They have no power over us. Yeah. And, and by the way, just hitting on this particular point, I mean, mask wearing ethics. You know, I, I'll tell you, I have uh, liberty-minded friends around here whom I, I dearly appreciate, but who are saying, well, when you're wearing a mask, then that just proves that you are subjecting yourselves to the government authority. Now, you know, kind of fine line here if you're doing it because the government authority told you to do it and not because you want to protect yourself and others, then th that would be a concern. So there's some validity to that statement, but I think we mostly miss the point here when we're talking about liberty. Um, if a business wants to require masks in their business, fine, do that. If you don't feel the need to make that requirement, do that too. The problem isn't the decisions we make in, in these little areas individually and in our businesses. The problem is the government edict and the demand that we comply with them. The better path is just let people get really good information, which we haven't gotten enough of, and then let them figure out what to do. Self-preservation is not a selfish endeavor. It's just something we do for our families, for our individual health and various things. This is kind of the core of this liberty discussion that some people get on this radical end of condemning someone because you're not being free enough. No, no, no. Be who you are with the information you've got. I mean, that's really at the, at the core of freedom, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think it is. And, and, you know, we believe in, we believe in community and we believe that liberty is a responsibility. Um, when it, this, this particular issue though is, is complicated because absolutely uh, businesses should be free to require masks. And I think a lot of them probably would just to make all of their com customers comfortable. And I will wear a mask inside, um, um, mostly out of deference to other people that, that right. feel uncomfortable. I, I personally am not convinced that they, they provide any, any sort of medical protection at all. And I've, I've read a lot of literature on this and I've, I've seen our, our national and international health agencies flip-flop back and forth you know, Fauci has taken every position on this and, yeah. and, and now he wants everybody to wear masks all the time, even though he won't do it at a baseball game. So there's lots of hypocrisy, right. lots of complexity. Right. Um, but I do think that there's, and this, this gets at our, 
um, we, we need to be careful when we're defending um, businesses and, and free market capitalism that we're not mixing it up with cronyism because I do think there's a lot of um, unstated compulsion happening where, where big businesses, particularly big corporations, um, couldn't possibly not mandate masks because all of, our, all of our governors and all of our health experts in the government, starting with Fauci and others in the Trump administration, tragically are telling us that today, at least they didn't used to say it, but now they're telling us to do it. Um, I think uh, I was just with uh, uh, Ron Paul, the next episode of, of my podcast, Keep Me on Liberty, was shot um, with, with one of my um, communications heroes. And I can get into that if you want, but he won't travel right now because he thinks that, that government mandated masks are an affront. And he's of course a doctor and, and he is, he is, uh, he's worn masks his entire career, but he doesn't think that it does the things that, that um, the government's now saying. So, so I get the skepticism, but, but I think, uh, you know, a little bit of politeness and a little bit of tolerance for people that have higher risk uh, preferences than, or lower risk preferences than, than some of us do. That's, that's just, uh, that's what your mom taught you. And I, whenever I get confused, I think about what my mom taught me and it usually solves my problem. Yeah, you know, uh, I've been involved in the liberty movement for a lot of years, just trying to work in this political thing to get us to an understanding again of liberty and freedom. And really, it, it really kind of comes down to the golden rule in a sense, you know, just think about others. And uh, if we could institute that in our reactions to these things, I mean, gosh, freaking Woodstock took place right in the middle of the Hong Kong flu, a more contagious uh, uh, virus than the COVID virus, which is relatively contagious, frankly, but, yeah. but even more contagious. We had 200 or nearly 200,000 people die on a population of 200 million compared to 330 million and 170,000. Now this was a pretty serious thing and we didn't do a dang thing like this. You go back to the Spanish flu, you know, the, the, the 1918 pandemic, 1918-19 pandemic, you, you, would, you would have small little closures here and there and little restrictions on a local basis, never this broad-based thing. And somehow we survive these things. These viruses are going to move anyway. There's nothing we can do to stop their movement. We can mitigate our local uh, condition to it, but quite frankly, it's, it's going to move. There's nothing that anyone can do to stop it except for herd immunity and maybe the miracle of a good vaccine. There's no way to stop these things. And this, this is what we forget. Science is a problem right now because we used to be, as a country, one of the most amazing, we had the most amazing skilled scientists who were dedicated to the scientific process. I mean, I remember the miracle of the slide rule that figured out the Voyager 1 journey because someone was doing some calculations uh, with their slide rule on the movement of the planets and thought, oh, dang, we better get this thing out there because we hit a whole bunch of planets on the way out. They did it with their slide rule. I mean, we were, we were a premier country when it came to science, even compared to Asian countries where it's more ingrained in the culture. And now we've gone so far off the rails in so many ways. And I think that's one of the things that gets exposed in this COVID-19 crisis. Yeah, there's a there's a big difference. Uh, Thomas Massey pointed this out yesterday. He was on the Tom Woods program, and you, of course, uh, are yeah. good friends. 
with Thomas. <laughs> yeah. And he, he pointed out that uh, Dr. Fauci and, and uh, uh, Dr. Burke, I think her name yep. is, um, mm -hmm. um, they're not scientists, they're bureaucrats. And they have, they have the, the proper letters after their names, but they've been immersed in government for a long, long time. And particularly um, Fauci has survived Republicans and Democrats. And he, he seems to say different things, different people, depending on which politician is asking him a question. He's a yeah. consummate politician. And that's different than science because science is always skeptical. Science is a process um, that, and, and one, of the, one of the phrases that triggers me so much is when people say the science is settled. And they use it a lot on global warming, but, but they're trying to impose that same standard on a virus that everybody readily agrees that none of us really understand. And the, the scientific process is humble enough to know that we don't really know things. So you have, you have iterations of experiments and you have arguments <clears throat> and you have um, you know, controlled trials and all these things, but, but we never know everything. And it, it's sort of, a, it's not unlike the rest of, of the world we live in. And, and we sort of arbitrarily suspect that science has it figured out Whereas in our lives, we don't always have it figured out because we're moving forward in this, in this complex world. It's the same thing. So I think, I think a little bit of humility from, from our, our so-called scientists would be in order on this. And, and back to your point, um, you know, I recently made a video at uh, uh, Jeffrey Tucker at AIER had, had written that original piece pointing out that Woodstock mm -hmm. um, ha happened in the middle of a pandemic. And it, it piqued my interest because I'm a big Grateful Dead fan mm -hmm. and <laughs> Grateful Dead, it turns out, you know, San Francisco based band, mm -hmm. uh, the Hong Kong flu migrated to the United States through soldiers coming back from the Vietnam war. And the port was, was in um, the San Francisco Bay. Um, the Grateful Dead actually played, I think 47 concerts at the height of the Hong Kong flu in San Francisco alone. So did Led Zeppelin. So did the Rolling Stones, mm -hmm. and nobody had this this attitude that we have to stop life until everything is perfectly safe. And as a result, we we probably got to a better solution. Um, you know, there is no magical cure that's going to protect us all from from all these viruses or anything else that makes us sick. Um, but I I suspect today, because we've taken the opposite approach, and you can just look at Andrew Cuomo in New York, he actively made things worse. He actively killed more people than would have died otherwise because he thought he knew enough to redirect things from the top down and did really stupid things like, like herd uh, recovering COVID patients into nursing homes. That's what Hayek called the fatal conceit. And I think we, before we start doing a lot of harm, we should actually have enough humility to say, we, we don't know what to do. Yeah. We don't know what to do. So let's, let's go back to what mom told us to do. Wash your hands, cover your mouth when you cough. If you're sick, stay home. This, <laughs> these are mom's yeah. rules, and that's basically where we should be on this thing. Yeah, you know, it's, it is funny. The moment, and I think, I think Thomas would agree with this, the moment, who, who is a scientist, by the way, I mean, truly a scientist in every real sense of the word, uh, presently a legislator, but you know, you know what I'm saying. Full-fledged uh, uh, redneck nerd, right? That's exactly right. That's what I love about him. By the way, I love your 
series on him off the grid. It's like, I'm, I'm going to link up to that in here just as a reminder, because what a perfect example of, of a real scientist. So, so whenever I hear anyone say the science is settled, I, I know immediately they're not doing the science. Okay. It's not science suddenly because it is a constant, just look at what we've done with astrophysics. You know, we've just, to be candid at one time, astrophysics uh, had uh, people of faith shut down who wanted to argue for um, the existence of God. And then suddenly it's gotten so, I mean, these guys are brilliant, atheists among them, whatever they are. And now that debate re, it has a resurgence because we're constantly w under whatever motivation, whether you're a theist or a non-theist, this uh, science keeps advancing because of man's curiosity and it increases the debate. It changes it. It makes it more f interesting and, and thoughtful. And uh, science has become so politicized, but there's another aspect of this. So we marvel at the physicists. We marvel at the virologists, uh, many of whom are doing amazing work right now through this process to try to figure out what's going on. But the reality is that th those are the things that your average American is not an expert at. But this is what every American should be an expert at. And that's the, I love the cats, your libertarian cats. I love it. Um, this is the thing that we should be uh, thinking about, which is um, the deductive side of this. What are the conclusions? That's something approachable to everybody. I think the basic rules of logic apply for us. And we should be willing to assert those and not, may, not be intimidated by the guys who do the inductive research where we should uh, honor them as experts. That's, that's what they're good at. What we should all be good at is figuring out what the conclusions are and, and appropriately stating them in a public square. So we've been joined by uh, yep. one of my senior economists. Uh, his, his name is Reardon. <laughs> all, of my, all of my cats are libertarians and they're, they're Randians, they which seems to make sense if, if anybody has a cat. They're, they're, they're radically individualist and, and he loves to hang out in the studio, but yeah, but yeah it's, um, it, and it gets back to the basic principle that, that we're laying out in this entire program. There's, there yeah. needs to be a, a level of humility that nobody knows everything and anybody that's claiming to be smart enough to redirect our activities or to dictate that the science is settled or to say, I have the solution to COVID-19 and involves hurting uh, sick people into nursing homes, we should always be skeptical because um, what I wanted, I always viewed, and I, I'll go back to, to March 15th, I think I wrote my first piece on, on what were emerging as these, these hardcore COVID lockdowns. And I went back to Frederick Bastiat and, and Bastiat has this, this particular essay that I've been quoting my entire life um, yeah. from economic sophisms. And he, he asked the question, how is Paris fed? And, and he, he uses it as a story to explain the incredibly complex division of labor that happens spontaneously from the bottom up to make sure that the production and distribution and allocation of food ensures that the people in Paris don't even think about it. They don't even wonder where their food comes from. They sleep, in his words, they sleep soundly at night, not appreciating that should you disrupt that system, people would start dying. They would starve to death. And I, and I apply that same logic to, to lockdowns. I, I think a lot of people that did this, and they're, they're only starting to learn the lesson 
of, of the unintended consequences of their actions, um, there's, there's going to be tremendous destruction to our economy, tremendous destruction to employment, tremendous destruction to that, to that fragile web of production and distribution that keeps us all fed, uh, keeps us with access to healthcare, keeps us uh, um, warm in the winter and cool in the summer, all the things that Americans take for granted. And it's not gonna hit all of us the same. There's, there's haves and haves nots in this situation. And it's people at the margin, people that were living paycheck to paycheck, people that couldn't afford not to go to work who are gonna pay the price. Some of us are, are privileged in a sense that at least so far we've been able to continue to do the work that we do, but um, it, is, it is the exact opposite impact that progressive politicians are willing to own up to. They are hurting mm -hmm. the people who are most vulnerable right now. And I wonder if there'll be that accountability. You know, Andrew Cuomo did all, the, all these things wrong, but he's on, a, he's on a victory book tour right now, bragging about it. And I, I guess this is just the power of politics over facts. Um, yeah. If you say it loud enough, people will start believing that you're, you're our savior when in fact you have blood on your hands because of the decisions you made. And, and I, I just, I just hope there's accountability. And, and there's, there needs to be because, and, and his reasoning for throwing these people back into, um, back into these nursing homes was to make sure that he had enough beds in hospitals that ended up he never needed. And they were the worst hit state. Um, it, it, it is absurd to me, the politician that can have absolutely the worst death rate in, and, and in that region as well than, than anywhere else in the country. And in fairness, those death rates happen for reasons not exclusively related to government and transmission. You know, there, there are differences in geography and cities. And so, so there's some fairness there. I don't want to be entirely beating them down. But the, the fact is all those Northeastern states, which closed the most, have amongst the worst death rates when you look at the statistics and yet to go around like something incredible happened is absurd. But this, see, this is kind of the arrogance of the politician on both sides of the aisle, to be candid. I get so frustrated with the uniparty, you know, the Republican and Democrat party, yeah. because they, there's no self-awareness there because there is an accountability. And I'm not convinced that there will be the proper kind of accountability unless people of goodwill continue to do this, community organizing to talk with one another. This stuff nowadays happens underground because the media are so lost. They don't even know what perspective is. But again, whether it's Fox News or MSNBC, there's a loss of perspective of what's going on because of these other pursuits of, and, and I'm not saying we shouldn't have the media. This, I'm not trying to throw the, throw the baby out with the bathwater here, but there's this consistent promotion of the uh, of of the getting the advertisements of doing the ex, um, the extreme the the notable rather than really doing the hard work day in and day out, which I think is what consumers want in all this. But we've you, organizations like yours, like Free the People, really does do this in the underground in a way that is vivid and clear. This is how we get that message across. So I think in that sense, there's accountability. I don't think the media is going to give them accountability, at least not the right kind. Yeah, we're, uh, Free the People was, was actually founded 
somewhat explicitly as the counter-revolution against clickbait. Yeah. And, you know, sensational headlines and people are always freaking out and, and, and targeting the wrong things. And, and media has been so corrupted today. You look at the headlines of things that have nothing actually to do with what the articles are publishing. Yeah. Um, they just want to scare people. They want to, they want to get people angry about the other guys and both parties, I think, have fallen into this trap where they're they're mostly defined about what they hate about the other guys. Yeah. Um, and and it was becoming shorter and shorter and shorter. And and we used to have this this theory that particularly with young people, young people have short attention spans. Well, it turns out that's not true at all. That Facebook imposes short attention spans on people because of the 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 way that the, the scroll is structured and it it doesn't let you actually focus on something. It is always constantly trying to pull you away from that. So we notice this counter-revolution, which we're both participating in today, where reasonable conversations amongst friends, amongst, uh, amongst people that disagree, um, you know, we used to call it the intellectual dark web, but it's much bigger than that. And you have, you have guys like Joe Rogan, yeah. where young people watch three hours of what Absolutely. is typically typically a reasonable conversation with people that don't agree. Yeah. And to me, that's that's the opportunity that we have at Free the People. And that's why we that's why we focus on storytelling. I really try to avoid partisan politics because I think I think if if you or I identified by, oh, I'm a Republican or I'm a libertarian. Um, you immediately turn off people that have already decided that those people are no damn good because they've been told by the media and whoever their, their tribe is that don't, don't trust those people. Right. Um, we call ourselves tripartisan because <laughs> um, I want to, I want to speak to all the tribes. Yep. Um, and, and I think young people, like people are so skeptical and pessimistic about young people because they're flirting with democratic socialism uh, I don't buy that at all. I think I think it's a language problem, and mm -hmm. I think it's a storytelling problem. And I think um, they've been sold this idea that democratic socialism, by putting democratic on top of this word, they've transformed it into mean something that is precisely what we've been talking about this whole thing. Something bottom up. Um, you listen to Alexandria Ocasio Cortez talk about it in her way. She's talking about community based action. She's talking about neighbors taking care of each other. And that, of course, is the opposite of what socialism is. And they're trying, right. to, they're trying to make these two things that don't fit together, fit together. But, but the small d democratic part, I think, is very attractive to young people because they live in a world where they have lots of control over all of their choices. They choose their music. They choose their friends. They, they curate communities spontaneously. They, they live in what I would call a radically democratic world in that they have lots of power that you and I didn't have when we were kids. And mm -hmm. so I, I think there's a huge opportunity there, but, but it, it goes back to some of these, these principles and values we're talking about. Humility, understanding who you want to talk to. Don't, don't tell them what to think because you're so damn smart. Uh, listen a little bit and try to figure out where that, where that shared value is. Because I still, think, I still think America is genetically predisposed to be free. And that's yeah. in every one of us. And, and we, should, we should tease that, that value out. It's there and it's competing with other values that are very anti-liberty. And I think, I think we need to, to, to connect with that one. I think we've approached the precipice more than at any time in our country. But the, the protection here is the fact that I think the individual of whatever 
ideological or political or whatever stripe that they might feel that they come from, that the individual human being is really desiring that freedom, you know, and, and they're not going to, they're not going to say it in the political sense the right way. They just, they just have this sense in them that, listen, I, I can figure this out. I re so that's a natural, I think, human uh, characteristic uh, combined with a country that does have a very strong history of, of individual effort that is not uh, uh, at, not in every case at the expense of other people, but I'm doing my individual effort along with everyone else. And we honor others who do well in their individual effort. We have that sense about us. Again, not every individual, not entirely, but we ha that's kind of our nature as a country. We, we tend to want to applaud someone else's good effort. We tend to want to, well, we definitely want to succeed in our own effort. I think the best and most stable country is the one where every good decision made should reap the full positive benefits of what that is. And that the risk of loss for bad decisions should not be hindered as well. And we tend to moderate the downside of that exchange when we're, when we're responsible for all of it. I think that, and, and Americans like that opportunity and they get frustrated about it. When they, when they ding up against government, it really frustrates individuals in this country, I think. Yeah, and it's, you know, the genius of the bottom-up approach to things and, and Senator Mike Lee, who we're, we're both um, fans of, has yeah. a pretty profound point on this that I'll get into. But, uh, but the idea of America was never that we were going to be all the same. We, we weren't going to be forced to fit a certain mold. It was born on freedom of religion. It was born on freedom of association. It was born on the idea that each, each of us could pursue our own path and when you leave people free, as diverse as we are, we naturally gather and cooperate. And that's why America, to, in my mind, is such a special place. And, and what Senator Lee has pointed out, he obviously is a constitutional conservative, a constitutional mm -hmm. lawyer. And, and I asked him on my show, why is it that things seem so angry and hostile? And it's such an obvious answer, but I never really thought of it this way. It's because we've shifted all the power away from communities all the way up the chain of command so that the president, whoever it is, could be Barack Obama, it could be Donald Trump, um, he gets to decide everything. He gets yeah. to decide whether or not we belong to this tribe or that tribe. Do we respect this religion or that religion? Do we respect people uh, that are white, people that are African-Americans? Like these are not political decisions and they're not, um, they're not even divisions that free people would recognize as all that relevant. And so his point is let, let's get back to federalism and let's, let's shift a lot of these power back to the states. But I would take it even further. I wanna see it at the community level and I wanna see solutions that don't come from government, but solutions that come from free people because we know that's the most robust model for problem solving. It, it always is. It's the, it's the best security for economics, even in downturns. So it, it, it we, cause we collectively in our individual efforts figure it out. I, I love how Milton Friedman always used the phrase, uh, you know, to uh, give people, let people, uh, you know, undertake their own pursuits. 
Let them figure out the things that are most important for them. That works in, in the collective while not being a collectivist thing. I agree with Mike Lee's analysis, by the way. You know, so my, I call my podcast against nice. And so a lot of people would think, okay, so you're telling people to be mean and rude. I'm not saying that at all. I actually take a real biblical perspective on this idea. I, it kind of first hit my mind in a conversation I was having with Andy Breitbart, I think back in 2009, where he was talking about he felt like he needed to be a protector of Christians because they were way too nice. And, you know, it being imbibed in my political efforts at the time, I had to agree. I mean, it's there are some people who get bamboozled into thinking that they have to sit back and let these overlords determine what's going on. And, and, but when you really look at the definition of nice, it's really a subjective thing. It's like what's pleasing to me, what is acceptable to me. The real value here that we need to undertake as a society is kindness, which is a very interesting. And, and the, the, it's, the line seems real close between niceness and kindness, but it's very profound. You know, no parent would be considered uh, very kind who didn't discipline their children. But no child thinks it's very nice when they're being disciplined, you know. And it's kind of, the, the the you know I don't want to make it some patriarchal approach to uh, to society, but that but this particular example is one amongst many. I mean, no one would consider it very kind to allow someone to be beaten up on the street. But if you went over to stop that thing on behalf of the person being harmed then the guy that you're stopping wouldn't think it's very nice. This, this plays out in so many places in society. Kindness is a value in the Bible, uh, in the Old Testament word chesed, which is, you know, kindness, loving kindness, thoughtfulness towards others. And, and it speaks much about God's loving kindness when it's being said from the Old Testament perspective. This is a value of life that is critical. So we need to shift the subjective nature of how we look at society. There is objective truth. There are, there are principles that are real in economics and in, in science, in, in politics that are very fundamentally real. Bastiat and others have, have laid this out so well through the, through the, dec, through the uh, centuries. And if we're willing to assert those on behalf of the good of others, and that's the key difference, niceness is my, about my good. Kindness is about your good. And if we can, if we can do it, that's what I try to emphasize through this. And I, I'm, I'm a bit provocative in saying it gets nice, but, but I want to draw people in to hear what I'm saying here. The good of others is what we should be concerned with every day. Yeah. So when I, when I hear the word nice, and again, these are subjective and, and yeah. I'm, I'm keenly aware of, of how words land when, when I'm speaking to somebody, but when I hear nice, it sounds kind of superficial. It sounds like you're, you're pretending to care for another person where you're just trying to avoid a confrontation. Whereas kindness and empathy and, yeah. and tolerance, those, those, are, those are real values that, that, that come from a person's heart. And part of that is speaking truth to power. And you right. don't have to be a jerk about it, um, but it, it is not kind to let young people think that socialism is better than American capitalism. Um, yeah. But it's also, you have to be aware that um, they've been, they've, they've grown up in a place where capitalism isn't a thing. It's all cronyism. And they see Wall Street getting bailed out 
and they see the collusion between big book government and big business, and they don't like that instinctually. And I, I'm, a, I'm with them a thousand percent. And they're told that there's only one other alternative. If you don't like that, you got to be a democratic socialist. So we got to right. we got to sort through that stuff. But but I think you and I would agree that there's absolutely nothing kind about socialism in practice. It it specifically targets um, minorities, religious minorities. Um, Anybody that's a little bit different gets gets snuffed out under real top-down government-imposed socialism, and so we we got to fight that fight. And maybe that's not kind, or maybe that's not nice. Yeah, but it's it's the right thing to do if you care about people. And and by the way, it's interesting because and it seems to be more common with people on the left, but I think we do it as human beings in general. We uh, we're impatient when someone doesn't come along with us immediately. I, I, I know conservatives are guilty of this too, you know, because we're so impatient about how we bring people in. This is what you do so incredibly well at Free the People through the storytelling that you do, which is really laying out a message. There's no doubt about it. You're laying out a principle, but, but you're doing it where we're at. And, and I want to, I want to, there's one in particular that I think, and amongst many that I think is so critical for us to understand at this time. But, um, and I want to do this before we lose our, any chance for our time together is when it comes to restorative justice, because this is the big issue right now that frankly is dominating much of our debate. And this George Floyd thing happened. And, you know, guys like you and me have been saying for a long period of time, we've got to reform how we do policing and, uh, and particularly the criminal justice system, uh, putting people in jail or what we do with them when they've committed a crime. Should the, some of these crimes be crimes? But even the ones that are, how do we deal with this? We've been talking about this forever. We were just on the cusp of making a radically positive transformation in this country because you had the entire country on board with after what happened with George Floyd. And then you had certain activists of a socialist Marxist bend take advantage of that. And now they're not even talking about it in any substantive right. way. You, you did a video on restorative justice, particularly right here in my home state of Colorado, um, up in Longmont. This is, an, and, and I'm going to, as we're talking about this here, I'm going to come back in and put in some clips of some of the the quotes from that in the video. I don't have the means to do it here, but just so for the listeners, I'm going to throw those in at this part of the discussion because there's some beautiful things happening in Longmont, Colorado. T talk about uh, what this video was and, and, and what, what the surprise that we found in this city. Yeah, it's, it's been our, our most ambitious project so far. It's uh it's a, uh, it's, it's slightly, it's about 15 minutes long. So it's not what I would call a feature length documentary, but it was, right. it was cut that way specifically to meet a certain category for film festivals. And it, it, uh, you know, before COVID it had it start, started winning awards, but, but we wanted to take a, an esoteric concept, restorative justice and translate it into human terms. And we discovered this just amazing pro program in Longmont, Colorado, which which is a collaboration between law enforcement and and nonprofit justice groups, 
um, um, very different politically, very different philosophically, probably coming from different uh, ends of the political spectrum. But they came together because they had a policing problem. They had a, they had a police credibility problem. They had a justice problem. They had a recidivism problem where young people were, were getting caught in the criminal justice system and becoming career criminals. Sounds like everywhere in mm -hmm. America today. Yeah, and they, they came up with this this program that that moves a lot of potential cases out of the justice system before those kids get caught up in a system that they can't escape. And and uh, the, the, the 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 police chief, Chief uh, Mike Butler, is one of the stars of the documentary, and he he points out something something pretty important. Once you get in, once you get into court. Um, you don't have the opportunity to say, I screwed up. You don't have the opportunity to say, I'm sorry, because it's adversarial and your job is to survive with as either get off or, or get as small of a sentence as possible. So you're, you're generally just arguing, I didn't do that and all that stuff. Uh, what this process does is it moves it out of that adversarial system and the, you know, the victim of the crime has to um, agree to this process. Law enforcement has to agree to this process. Um, the perpetrator has to agree to this process and the community gets involved and they try to figure out a way to make the victim whole. One of the things that really rubs me the wrong way as a libertarian is when we talk about the criminal justice system exacting um, a debt to society. Mm -hmm. Quite often when it comes to crime, there is a perpetrator and a victim and the victim is the one that needs to be made whole. Um, exactly. It's, it's, it's a little difficult to understand. So this, um, you know, we did this before, way before George Floyd. We shot it last year and we were going to distribute it through film festivals. Um, those obviously have been essentially shut down. And I was thinking, you know, with all of this, this arguing about policing, maybe this is a horrible time to release it, but then we, then we completely flipped and said, this is exactly the time to release it because Washington DC is not gonna fix this problem. They're right. all gonna posture and pretend, um, you know, the, the, the Democrats are worse on this, by the way, they, they, they refuse to move. You know, my friend, Justin Amash, the one libertarian congressman has said like, we, we could pass some bills. We have ideas, we know how to solve this problem, but nobody seems to wanna to do that so back to the, the, the paradigm that we've been talking about this entire time, let's go bottom up. Let's yeah. go community by community. Let's deal with individuals that are gonna take responsibility to fix a problem. And the net result in Longmont is that recidivism has dropped radically and the one-time one clash um, uh, both uh, it, it had, had race components and it had sort of um, uh, poor community components to it, that's gone. The police no longer have this horrible reputation in that community. So, so anyway, we, we think it's a model that should be uh, exported to all communities in America, even big cities. Yeah, I, and listen, that, what's interesting as I watch it, just knowing the players here in Colorado, you know, you have uh, State Senator Pete Lee there, who's very far on the left of the political spectrum. But is is and and I and I suspect now I don't know the lady who runs the program there in, in Longmont the the private program that works with the police department, but I'm guessing she's probably on the left of the political spectrum too, 
what is beautiful about this thing is that, you know, this is exactly the approach that we need. They're doing this within the construct of the current criminal justice system. In other words, it's a pause from the criminal justice system into a voluntary effort that, that deals with things at a human level. And so we're not going to pass the right kind of laws. I mean, even when we try here in Colorado, we, we passed a, a decent, frankly, uh, criminal justice reform bill after the George Floyd thing. And it, it's not bad. There were some good things there. There were other things that is like, I, I don't know, but it's like these people sitting in Denver, they don't have the answer for all this. The people have the answer for it. And if you're wanting to get rid of police forces, which I do not support, I think there, this is a, a a proper role of government. But if you're wanting to back that off, then this is the approach to take rather than, well, we're just taking the money away. It's kind of like we want to get, we have the worst system in the world in terms of the number of people that we incarcerate in this country. And we want to, to reverse a lot of that and give people hope and get back into society. Well, you don't do it by grabbing the money away, closing down the prisons. You do it by making the prisons unnecessary and the funding unnecessary. This is this is really, I, th I think, the part of the message that you're putting out in this in this documentary. Yeah, big time. I I thought, and you know, I'm I'm a libertarian, so I I think that that the need for law enforcement should be a small fraction of what it is today, because I think I think our our police are constantly put in a horrible position where they have to enforce laws that shouldn't have been laws in the first place because I, I right. don't believe you know a lot of things um an infinite number of things we make illegal probably shouldn't be and that's politics and not justice um right. but yeah you're right that the, the hashtag defund the police was again a distraction from actually getting real reform and and i think i think we should be and, and back to mike lee's point why are we looking to washington dc or even state yeah. capitals to fix this problem why don't we do it? Why don't yeah. we take responsibility? And one of the things we did with this movie, I I didn't know I was going to do it when I made when we made it, but once I saw it, I'm like, this is a how to do it. This is not just a human story about about redemption. This is a how you can do this in your community. And and one one of the activists that saw it um, in Colorado um, organized an event in in Eagle County, and. It was amazing. We had to do a pop-up movie theater because we had to socially distance. Mm -hmm. um, but he was able to get justice activists. Um, uh, there was there was one group there from from a local Black Lives Matter chapter, but he also had law enforcement. He had the district attorney's office. He had uh, national uh, justice groups. Uh, Kathleen, who's the the nonprofit star of of the, the documentaries yeah. there. Yeah. And they've started a very practical process of implementing this in their communities. And to me, that's what should happen. Because if you watch this documentary and you're, you're moved and hopefully it's emotionally compelling to you, and then you don't do anything, I've accomplished nothing. So yeah. it's, it's sort of a, a new, as a community organizer, I, I want to, uh, I want spontaneously for, for activists to take this work that we did, uh, make it their own, Distribute it any way you want, and we will we will give you uh, the support we can in terms of uh, in terms of live streaming. Um, we're actually doing an event in a couple of days with Americans for Prosperity 
and stand together. Um, and we got about uh, 2000 activists that are going to participate in that as well. And I just, wow. I just wanted to take on the magical power of decentralization because I think, I think that's how we get out of these problems. It's always got to be bottom up. I, when we make the government useless, then it tends <laughs> not to remain in those areas. I think it, it, Mike Lee was, is very profound, Senator Mike Lee, in, in what you said there, because uh, you know, we, we have to get back to a society where being a congressman is about as important as being some local city council member. You know, yeah. there's a role, there's a function and a purpose. If, if we drew things back to the constitutional limit in this country, we'd cut about 80% or more of the federal budget, you know, and, and people, but, but, but even better than that, people would be free to go out and do the things that matter to them, that work for them, and that help others. I do agree with you, though, hearing this documentary, which, I mean, you, it'll bring you to tears in some areas, just be, when you see the beautiful effort that is taking place there. And it's sad to know that some people in their tribalism are not going to accept the people of the left or the people of the right that are involved with this, hate the cops, hate the community activists, hate you, whatever. These, that, that misses the entire point because this is a human issue. This is not a political issue. Crime and what we do in, in that, that pursuit is a human issue at its core. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's, that's, again, what we're trying to get at with all of the stories that we curate. And we do stories about the Grateful Dead, and we do stories about beer, and we do um, stories about um, what, an issue that's near and dear to my heart, uh, cancer patients that couldn't get treatment under, yeah. under these lockdowns. Um, so some of the, and, and we do stories about how many people died under socialism. So we we sort of cover the gamut of, of emotions, but the, if we do it well, we've, we've translated a complex idea into a human story that, 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 um, that, that hurts a little bit. You feel it mm -hmm. um, and you care enough to do something about it. And, and to me, that's the future. That's the counter-revolution against tribalism. It's a counter-revolution against uh, phony kindness from people in Washington, D.C. that have that say they have our best interests in mind. Um, and I, I think most Americans can get there, but, but we who believe in freedom need to look in the mirror a little bit and see whether or not we're, we're helping or hurting uh, simply by, you know, by sharing, uh, sharing memes that, that make fun of fill in the blank. Yeah, you know, I, I, I guess I've done it that or as well. Yeah, we've all yeah, done it, it's fun. And, and yeah, I love the Babylon Bee, for example. You know, it's just frankly hilarious. Satire's good. I think it brings out a discussion sometimes if done in the right way. Before we lose satire, our time, yeah, go ahead, go ahead, go yeah, ahead, say that. Just, just, just a thought about that. Satire is is fundamentally different because it satire makes fun of things. Uh, we make fun of ourselves, and mm -hmm. and I think it's tragic that that our social media overlords have have gone after the Babylon Bee. It, it suggests that. There's a yeah. level of, of political corruption there that's unconscionable. I've been getting to know these guys, and you know they're a lot like you and me. They've really got that heart about them. They had a great Ron Paul interview, by the way. I don't know if you saw that, but it was really good. Um, but you know, w if we if we 
don't understand our weakness. Satire helps us understand our weaknesses is another real beauty of satire because we take ourselves so seriously. We think we're so important, you know, and, and, and there are serious things about our lives and there are important things about our lives, but, but sometimes we really get it out of perspective and it could be a real frustration. So, but before we lose our time here, I, I want to ask you or throw this out at you and, and get your thought kind of feed, also feeding off of that. Don't we need a bit of restorative justice in our politics? Big time, big time. And I, I, you know, I've, I've, I've sort of abandoned politics. I mean, you know my history. I've been involved yeah. in, in all sorts of uh, political efforts over time. Um, I was a big Tea Party organizer. Yep, um, you and I but, both. But I, and I think we need to get a little bit upstream of that, right? Because yeah. the, the politics has morphed into something that, that just sheds heat and no light. And you know, part of the restorative justice uh, just restorative practices generally um, is the idea that you would bring people together in a dispute or from different perspectives, potentially um, uh, competing perspectives, and try to just understand where the other guy's coming from. Um, yeah. And and I think I think as a country we need that right now. And and that's why I try. It, it's difficult, and I'm I'm sure you try as well. But it's difficult to find people from a different perspective that are willing to, to come on and have those brave conversations because, because my audience and their audience will judge us for it. And they're like, why do you have that guy on your show? Yeah. And, but I think, um, you know, that, that, that there's a minority of people that say, wow, that was, I really learned something there because I've never had a chance to talk to someone from the far left about those subjects. And, you know, all I hear is the talking points from politicians, but I, I didn't even understand where they were coming from. I, I learned this uh, um, Black Lives Matter, um, probably like you, I don't know where you were, but my initial reaction to that phrase after Ferguson was, no, 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 all, all lives matter. That's the yeah. whole point of this. Right. And I didn't, I didn't realize until I had a chance to talk to some activists, and this is, this is long before George Floyd, it's long before sort of the, the radical Marxist um, dominated this movement. Mm -hmm. What that phrase meant to a lot of people that I was talking to was that black lives don't matter enough when it comes to the equal enforcement of our justice system. Yeah. And I agree with them 100% on that, on that proposition, but that Absolutely. language, all lives matter, blue lives matter, black lives matter, at least try to understand what, what the other guy's trying to say. And then you could have an argument once you understand the terms of the conversation. Um, that's, that's what I'm trying to do. And sometimes it upsets my fans, but, but I think more importantly, it, it, it opens um, some people's hearts and, and minds to the idea that we, we got to restore this. We love this country. We got we to gotta come back together somehow and, and heal a little bit. You know, I had a, a conversation with my dear friend for decades, uh, Ken Johnson. He's the now former uh, chaplain for the Indianapolis Colts. Big black dude, played football. But we never, we never talked black and white. But, but then when issues like this come up, we're forced into this. It's like we get out of the human conversation and get into the racial one, which is another thing that would be nice to get rid of. But even someone like him, as prominent a position as he has had, still finds himself from time to time with police doing things to him that are like, 
absurd. You're like, what? So when you hear the Black Lives Matter movement and they and people are insistent upon using that phraseology, hold on a second. <laughs> you know, don't don't judge the phraseology right away. I agree with you because it's like there's something happening there. But then on the other side, don't tell me that all the police are bad. There are fantastic policemen that are passionate about doing good in their community. So, but we just got to figure out about the bad ones and, and also know when the good ones are crossing those lines too, because it's actually my friend, Ken, I got a couple other tremendously close uh, black brothers of mine that are, that, that tell me these stories for decades. So don't, don't forget you good cops. Sometimes you're doing these things even unwittingly. So this is a conversation that is worthy to have. It's just sad that these socialist Marxists have kind of, with the help of the media in some ways, uh, again, mal malignantly or in a benign fashion, giving them the, the, the discussion point here when there's, there's, there are valuable discussions to be having on the back end of this. Yeah. And, and, and I'll, I'll pick on both sides here because this knee jerk, yeah. uh, um, cops can do no wrong position. Right. Oh, yeah. Is, um, is is blind to the reality that you just described. All of my friends tell the same story, and it, it it's anecdotal, but it seems uh, ubiquitous. And the the problem on our side is that we we jump into that position. Why why are you attacking law enforcement? And then the other side, if you know, one of the reasons why there are bad cops is that public employee unions protect them. At all oh, costs. So crazy. Um, and, and and when when good officers speak up against the bad behavior of bad officers, it's the good officer that gets taken out, and it's classic uh, public employee union behavior. But if we acknowledge that public employee unions, when it comes to law enforcement, corrupt the system, um, some of our progressive friends would have to acknowledge that maybe it's a really bad idea that we can't fire any public employee for any reason. Um, you have to go to court, and they're always reinstated. But that has corrupted law enforcement just like everything else, and it makes it more difficult to recruit and, and hold good people who see this bad stuff going on. And uh, I think we've got a lot of work to do to try to figure out um, how we can have these substantive discussions without getting caught up into the tribalism of politics because, it would, again, I just – and I'm going to link it. I just think it's real important, your uh, restorative justice video, because it, some people won't know unless you're in the know. Th this is a discussion between people of various tribes, various political thinking, where something is just working. That was fundamentally what was good about this country. And, and I agree with you. Still, we have some foundation of that here if we can only draw upon it. I'm I'm really desirous for us to be able to do that. I think what you're doing to free the people is something that no one else is doing, even in the Liberty movement. Um, and it's, it's bringing, I, I, it's cool to me watching what's happening on social media with you guys over the last three years that I've been observing it. It's, it's been amazing to see the response, the, the notability of who you guys are, and what you're doing. I mention you to people and I'm just pleased that more and more people really recognize it. So you guys are doing such valuable work, telling these stories, uh, keeping it honest and about the issue at hand. If we can get a lot more of that going, I mean, I, I still have hope for this country. Have you lost any hope in this country in any way? 
Um, you know, the last couple of months have been pretty rough, but but I'm uh, I wouldn't do what I do if I didn't have hope for this country because uh, you and I could could go off into the productive economy and and yeah. have more stable careers and, and maybe make more money. But but right. I've always been an activist and that's what I do and I do it because not just because I care about it because but because I think we can make a positive change and and our founders told us that if you don't work actively every day to protect what we have, we're going to lose it. So yeah. I, I have to be an optimist and, and I'm even optimistic that there'll be some accountability for, for some of these horrific mistakes that our mayors and governors and, and even the Trump White House have made in this process. So you got to be. And, I, and one, one point, and thank you for your kind words about Free the People, but one cool data point that I love so much is that we have a, we have a huge audience um, primarily on, on social media, Facebook, YouTube, um, that kind of thing. And it is the inverse of the audience that we had when I was a Tea Party organizer, because that, that community was, was, was older, right? right. Um, you been to the rallies, and particularly the longer the Tea Party went on, it, it tended to get, get, get older. But most of my audience is under 30, and I think it's because they respond to the stories, they respond to the nonpartisanship, and they love to consume video content. So we, we yeah. did all of that stuff very consciously because uh, we, we did this very expensive uh, uh, study, um, big econometric study. I spent millions and millions of dollars on it. And we discovered that young people live longer than old people. So... <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> we, we figured that we would put our investment there. And they tend in very high numbers to get involved in political activity at the appropriate age. Yep. <laughs> and, and, and community activity. I, I'm, I'm, I'm like you have been really concerned over the last couple months where we're going. I, I do think there's a potential tipping point uh, away. I mean, I look at the example of Venezuela uh, look at the example. I've been talking about this as well, too. Look at the example of Mexico right after the Mexican Revolution in the late 1920s. You know, they went to one party system dominated for 80 years. Of course, that broke eventually. So there's always hope. Um, but I do look at those examples and I ask myself, is that a possibility? I think our only protection against that is robust discussion, non-tribalism, <laughs> patience with others that we disagree with, if they'll listen to us, even when they haven't come all the way with us. And, and, and again, this is what I'm going to promote is this kindness. You know, Mike, by the way, Micah 6, 8 in the Old Testament says, he, God, has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. And a lot of Christians get tribal, frankly, too. It bothers me a lot. I don't engage with the culture, but um, but the railing judgments that God that that are exhibited in the Old Testament are against the church. You know, Jesus called the Pharisees a brood of vipers, but it also says that he was very gentle with the broken reed. I think this is this is what we've got to be doing in our society. I don't care if you're Christian or not. This example that I just expressed of Jesus, where you call out those who are truly and purposefully doing evil, but you are gentle with your, the average person that is really just trying to 
uh, work through this life, and particularly when it comes to restorative justice. Those are broken reeds. That's why Chuck Colson, to the amazement of people in the evangelical community, so pushed this because he had gone through prison. He had seen yeah. the problems. This is something that we can really make, and we can radically transform our society if we can hit this in a couple other areas, I think. Yeah, he was, he was brave enough to be a pioneer, and you know that's the nature of entrepreneurship is that when you start a project, and it doesn't matter if it's a company or an idea, uh, most people look at you like you're kind of crazy. Yeah. And eventually, when that idea blossoms and then people start to understand which, what, what you're really trying to accomplish, everyone jumps on board, and that's, that's the process of social change. Uh, one last time, it's bottom up, it's not top down, mm -hmm. because, because Chuck had to um, compete in the marketplace of ideas and convince people that he had a good idea and he had to, he had to show how it worked in practice. And we're, we're now seeing some of, some of the fruits of his labor. He, he, he certainly helped with this amongst many others, but he, he made a huge impact. It was great. So before we uh, leave the uh, podcast, Matt, Kibby, tell me what do people need to know and how do they need to get in contact with Free the People? So, so pre, please check out uh, freethepeople.org, which is basically a video channel. It, all of our content is organized um, by issues and themes there, and you can, you can search and find some of the work we've done. I also have a podcast, which is both published there and on Blaze TV. It's in partnership with Blaze TV called Kibbe on Liberty. And I have a conversation not unlike this one every week with, with somebody that I think is interesting. Sometimes, occasionally it's people from the left. We have a lot of libertarians and, and we have some contrarians on there as well. And uh, obviously follow us on social media. But, and, and if you're specifically interested in restorative justice, uh, connect with us on any of those platforms and, and, I, and our team would be happy to tell you how you might uh, organize the showing in your community and try to get something going. I love your t-shirt. Don't hurt people and don't take their stuff. I, I, this, it's just fundamentally, it, it's really it, it, an immutable truth. If we can do that, we radically transform society in a positive way we move forward. And again, people should go to freethepeople.org and, and free the people on Facebook and other places because I know you guys will get back with them. You're going to help them know what they can do in their community, give them some ideas. And uh, I think, I think that's going to be an important help in the long run as we can continue to propagate this. Thank you, sir. That this has been a blast and uh, we should do it again sometime. I would like to. We we got a lot we got a lot to root out. So and I I'm grateful to you for being on the podcast today, Matt. You've been a great friend and I'm just very thankful for what you and Terry do to make this country better. I'm I'm and uh, it's an example for us all. So thanks for joining us on the Against Nice podcast today. Back at you. Thank you for joining us today on the Against Nice podcast. Please be sure to go to our website, www.politicsisntnice.com. You can sign up for our email list there just at the top right of the webpage. And make sure to follow us on iTunes or Spotify or Stitcher or even the iHeartRadio app. And give us a five-star rating and let people know what you think about our podcast. Again, www politicsisntnice.com join our email list at the top right hand of the page there and follow us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher or iHeartRadio. Thanks for joining the show today. We'll be back soon.